This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. As we go through Luke 8 together, uh, beginning in verse 16, if you have a copy before you. Let's look at our text, beginning in verse 16, and I'll read down to verse 21. This is God's word. No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed or puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest or is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has more, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those that hear the word of God and do it. Let's pray. Lord, as we enter into this time now of hearing your word, we ask that you would reign by the power of your spirit in this place. And Lord, that this hearing would be fruitful. Lord, we pray that there would be soil ready to receive the word. Thank you that our hope is not in the messenger, but it's in the word. And so we pray that that word would do its work now. And we pray that work would not be a hardening work, that it wouldn't be responded to with a shallow heart or crowded out by the thorns of cares and distractions, but Lord, that it would be received and bear fruit. Lord, I pray for a a special humility as we hear the word and as I speak the word, especially as we think about obedience. And Lord, we pray that all that we say and do, Lord, would be centered on the gospel and the grace that you've shown us in Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would help me especially to be not just a hearer, but a doer of your word, not just a speaker, but a doer of your word. Help us all, Lord, to to see what it means to be a disciple and to make disciples. So we pray for your help, that you would be building us up, Lord, as your people to glorify you. Would you do this, we pray. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. It probably says a lot about me Uh, when I read this passage about a lamp and being under a bed and those things that I, the first thing that came to my mind is the movie Aladdin. Um, Am I the only one? Okay. Uh, You know the story. Aladdin discovers a magic lamp. And when he rubs it, this genie pops out and says, your wish is my command. 
Kevin Van Hooser notes that this is the classic response of a servant to his master. To hear is to obey. To hear is to obey. But in real life, there's often a gap, sometimes a yawning chasm between hearing and obeying. Not everyone is as fortunate as Aladdin. Sometimes servants hear and do half-heartedly, and other times they hear and do not at all. Someone has said that obedience, obedience to the teaching of Jesus could be the blind spot, the blind spot of the American church. So if you grew up in a Baptist church or maybe a Southern Baptist church or some other kind of uh, church is honoring scripture, my guess is you're very familiar with Jesus' last recorded words in the Gospel of Matthew. The marching orders for the church. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I wonder what you just heard when I said those verses. Did you hear a call to evangelize? To share the good news? I hope so. A call to make disciples of all the nations? Yes. Missions? Yes. To baptize those disciples in God's triune name? Yes. But I fear that often when we hear even that commission from Jesus that we love so much, we, we miss the call to obedience that's there. Disciples are to teach disciples to obey Jesus, to observe all that I have commanded. So there's teaching, there's listening, there's learning, and then there's obedience. So there's more to being a disciple than saying that you're a disciple. More, more than just hearing about Jesus, more than studying about discipleship, or even agreeing with the teaching of Jesus. True hearing is marked by obedience. We saw four ways people hear the teaching of God's word from Jesus' parable of the soils last week. Some hear with a hard and indifferent heart, so they do nothing with the seed of the word that it just bounces off of their heart because their heart is hard. And then the birds of the air, which we know is Satan, comes and steals away the seed of the word. Some here with a shallow heart. They respond with great enthusiasm and emotion initially. But then trials and temptation cause them to fall away. So what you see there is a decision, not a disciple. Some are so distracted with the cares of this life, with the pursuit of pleasure and riches, that there's simply no room for Jesus in their lives at all. Their, their love for the world trumps their love for Jesus, even when those worldly things are good things. But then there's some who hold the word close. They receive the word, patiently bear fruit and obey by God's grace, and those, those people are called disciples. One author said that a disciple is a convert in motion on the way of life. So the light of God's word shines through them. They're servants of Jesus. And then to hear for them is to obey. 
But our text teaches us that there's more than just followers of Jesus. They are actually his family. Verse 21, the church is Jesus' family that knows and obeys him. That actually characterizes God's people, our love for God and for others. And those people, when they gather, are like these oases in a desert scattered across the world where dry souls can come and find the life-giving water of the gospel among Jesus' family, among people like you. Those that know and do His Word, His body. That's what we're going to be considering today in the sermon. Jesus' warning here in verse 18 is really the, the main point of the text, I think. Take care how you hear. Be careful how you hear. So again, we're thinking about hearing the Word of God. How do we do that? How do we take care on how we hear? Well, the answer is pretty clear in the text. We put into practice what Jesus teaches, what we've heard. We respond. We believe. We obey. And the people that do that are Jesus' family. The church is made up of disciples who are hearing and doing the words of Jesus. Those are really the two takeaways from the passage that we're going to, we'll use those as our outline. So if you're taking notes, two takeaways from this passage. Number one, biblical hearing is displayed through obedience. Biblical hearing is displayed through obedience. You want to know if you've heard something biblically? Are you practicing it? Are you obeying? Verses 16 to 18. And then secondly, Jesus' family is set apart by their obedience. Verses 18 to 21. His family is set apart by obedience. And so may the Lord give us ears to hear and then feet that follow. First, let's think about this truth that biblical hearing is displayed through obedience. These verses really help to illustrate and interpret the parable of the soils that Jesus had just given. And if one of the lessons from that parable is to trust the Word of God, even when it seems like your, your work of, of sowing the seed is futile, your efforts of, of throwing the seed are, are just, they're not paying off, the lesson is driven home by that last soil that produces this crazy crop, hundredfold return. Edwards puts it this way, he says, God is at work, hidden and unremarkable as a seed itself, in Jesus, in the gospel, to produce a yield wholly disproportionate to human prospects and merit. The extravagant sowing that seemed, to, seemed mistaken and futile is vindicated by a bumper crop. In other words, the seed works. It's true. And so, Christian, keep sowing. What characterized that last soil was that it produced fruit. It did something with the word that was given by God's grace. And it produced more and more and more, exponentially more. And that is illustrated now by this picture of a lamp on a stand here in verse 16. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. So we're talking about an oil lamp, not the genie in the bottle kind. Okay, I know that may be what you were thinking. It's not that. It's an oil lamp, and it produces roughly the same amount of light as a candle. 
And so in order for that light to be most useful, it has to be elevated on a stand. And so if it were hidden under a bed or under a jar, those that entered the house would not be able to see the things in the house that that light is meant to illuminate. Everything in the room is still there, but you can't see it without light. So there's one clear point here about this lamp, and it's just a point about utility. You're not making good use of this lamp if you hide it. No one does that, Jesus says. It makes that lamp useless. It would be like making dinner for your family and spending a long afternoon making dinner and having them all sit down and setting the table. And then instead of bringing the food out to the table, you just scrape it right into the trash, right in front of them. Or it would be like buying the fastest car on the market that you could think of. Or the the truck with the biggest engine, whichever kind of strikes your fancy. Getting it, bringing it home, pulling it in the garage, closing the door, and then just throwing the keys away and never driving it. Or buying some nice exercise equipment. A Nordic track, an exercise bike, some home gym, but mainly so that you can hang your clothes on it to dry. Jesus' teaching is not meant for these things. It's meant to be used, to be put on display, to shine. Now, that's a point we want to see. But Jesus is also saying something about his ministry, I think, in particular, when he says here in verse 17, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. Remember, Jesus just told his disciples that they have this blessing given to them of the secrets of the kingdom. The secrets are given to the disciples. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 10, the true meaning of Jesus' teaching, everyone else gets it in parables and they're not understanding it, they're in darkness. So in one sense, the lampstand is a picture of Jesus' teaching, which broadcasts the truth of God. That truth that has been hidden and concealed actually by God until now. But now it's being revealed to all. So the function of Jesus' teaching is really twofold. It lights up the promise and the promises of God, but it also judges those who refuse to receive it and respond to it. Luke has introduced Jesus to us in his gospel this way. If you go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 79, he says this about Jesus. He has come to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's a a description of Jesus' ministry. Luke 2, 32 and 35, He is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I think John captures these themes really well, puts them together in John chapter 3. Verse 19 and following, he says, And this is the judgment. The judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So on the one hand, Jesus is illustrating 
the function of his life and ministry. And on the other hand, he's emphasizing the need to actually respond to it. So it's not enough to just acknowledge or agree. His words must be put into practice. Put on the lampstand for all to see. We must come into the light actually now. Or one day we will. And our deeds, even the secret ones that no one knows, will be exposed by the light. And then it will be too late. We read this in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether evil or good. Paul, speaking of Jesus in Romans 2, says, On that day, when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So Jesus' ministry brings in, this light brings in both revelation and judgment. So here's the punchline again, verse 18. Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Jesus is not speaking about material things here. When he gives this warning, material blessings, when he says the one who has, uh, the context here is hearing and doing the word. Who has, he who has the word and is hearing and applying the teaching of Jesus, that person receives more light, more blessing, and is given then even more light to follow him and more blessing. And so he, he's putting the lamp on the stand in his life and all things are coming to light. It makes me think of John in John 1.16, for from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. It's like this compounding interest of grace and more grace and more grace to this one. But the opposite is true for the person who doesn't respond to the word. But the person who doesn't come to the light, the person that doesn't receive the seed of the word and put it into practice, the one who has not, he'll lose even what he thinks he has. And I think that's instructive to just think about that, not just what he has, but what he thinks he has. He thinks going in all is well. He thinks everything's fine, but it's not. Uh, I spent some time this week just kind of thinking through this, and um, it's not the most straightforward, the, 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 this parable, but I think the, the parable of the ten minas in Luke 19, helps to shed some light on this. So I'm going to encourage you to flip over there to Luke 19. Luke 19, and maybe this will be helpful for you as you think about this, the have and the have-nots of the word and what they have and what they're doing with it. Just as you're getting there, let me just summarize what's happening. Um, Jesus tells of a nobleman who called his servants to him before he went away on a trip. And he gave them these 10 minas, this weighted currency worth about 60 shekels and said, engage in business until I return. So in other words, you need to put this money to use that I'm giving you this gift. Do something with it. And then when he returns, he calls his servants back to him to report, well, what have you done with what I gave you? And the first had turned his one mina into 10 more minas. And look what he says to him. Down in Luke uh, chapter 19, verse 17. And he said to him, 
Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And then the, the next, next person turned their one mina into five other minas. And they receive a similar response from Jesus. But, but then we read down in verse 20, Luke 19, verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. Verse 26, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's the exact language from Luke 8. Being a steward of what's given by God. It's a little bit crude to say using it or losing it. But that's about what you see. Satan will swoop down and take away the seed that is not used, that bounces off the heart of the hard heart. And then those that respond and receive the word get more and more and more of God. Those that ignore the word or delay their response by saying, not today, I'll think about that more another time, I'll get serious when I'm older, Whatever the excuse may be, they lose everything. And so Jesus says, take care, brothers and sisters, visitors. Take care how you hear. Biblical hearing is listening like we're doing right now. We ought to do that. It's good. It's right to do that. In kindergarten, that's the first step in learning. We listen to your teacher. But it's also internalizing and then putting what you've learned into practice. Another word for disciple is just learner. Learner. And how do we learn best if not by doing? How did you learn to swim? I bet you have some fun stories, especially those of you who are a little bit older. Your parents probably just threw you in the lake and said, good luck. You learned. I remember painstaking days with our kids of swimming lessons and it just being really hard until one day it clicked. None of my kids learned to swim by just reading it in a book. That's not how they learned. That's not how they learned to ride a bike, by reading the instruction manual, manual of how the bike works and what bikers do. No, they get out there and they give it a shot and they go and they scrape their knee, but they get back on and they continue to go. We learn by doing taking the word, putting it into practice. This is what disciples do. This is what Christians do. They hear and they do. Discipleship is active. First John, 6, First John 1, we read this. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Isn't that interesting that you can practice the truth, not just hear it and talk about it, 
but practice it. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Notice that the light that we receive from God cleanses us and reconciles us with the Father and then opens up fellowship with one another. As a pastor, often, and and our elders would probably see this, if someone is disconnected from the people of God, that there's there's a deeper, usually a deeper spiritual problem between them and God. Because when we're united to God, we want to be united to his people as well. And so when you hear this emphasis from Jesus on obedience, and if you just read the Gospels, you will hear it. And you hear us talk about it. Hearing and doing. I don't want you to hear doing as busy work. Some of you had a teacher like that that would just give you something to do, a worksheet to make you just pass the time. Some of you like that because it's a free grade. Some of you hated it because you were there to learn. That's busy work. That's not what we mean by doing. It's not moral striving. It's not trying to be good so that God would love you. And some of you, I think we get, we get this picture of Christianity in our head of lists to follow, rules to keep. That's not this at all. This doing is essentially living in accord with the truth of the gospel. Living in accord with the truth of the gospel. J.C. Ryle said it this way, The gospel which we profess is not given us only to be admired, talked of, and professed, but to be practiced. It was not meant to be to merely reside in our intellect and memories and tongues, but to be seen in our lives. In other words, it's a light, it's a lamp that we need to shine, let shine through us. And it's that glorious. It will shine in and through us for those that love it. For those that believe in it. So we do this, we apply the gospel, we practice the truth. When we, when we confess our sins together as a church, when we are confronted with the law of God's word and convicted of our own sin, we're practicing the truth. Because that then would take us to the cross to see how Jesus paid the penalty for all of our sin. Viewing him on the cross, lingering him, lingering there with him. The punishment that he endured for our sins. Singing songs like all sufficient merit that did what I could not. When we study and think through um, doctrines like divine election, we don't do that so that we can, we can win arguments and say gotcha to our friend, maybe who hasn't read these, these, some other passages. No, we do it to reflect on God's un merited mercy in our lives. He simply set his love on us, period. There is no boast, no reason. I should. If you woke up today believing in Jesus, the only boast you have is God's grace. We don't just define justification on paper, being made right before a holy God, but we can live in freedom from trying to improve our standing with God somehow by doing a little better here, not so bad there. No, it can't be any better than it is right now. Then you are justified in Christ. You can't be more accepted than you are right now in Christ. More loved, more approved. 
Hearing good and faithful servant. You will hear that ultimately because Jesus is the ultimate good and faithful servant. And your faith and trust is in him. And so the things that we typically think of related to sanctification, those things are downstream from the gospel, downstream from understanding who we are in Christ and never getting over it. Does meditating on the gospel affect whether or not you look at pornography or whether or not you repent after looking at pornography or your language or your addictions or your thought life? Yes, absolutely. But we're not here to just focus on what we do and don't do. God, Jesus came to change hearts and to change lives. And from that flow flows this sanctification, this growth in practical holiness. As we meditate on the doctrine of perseverance, it sustains us through trials and, and, and the doctrine of glorification that focuses us on, on Christ's return, the doctrine of hell that sobers us and pushes us to open our mouths about Jesus. We're putting these things into practice. So every time we learn something from God's word, we should be asking, okay, how does this show up in my life? It may show up in just your worship, returning thanks to God for saving you. Or there may be just a very practical application that you need to make, an adjustment, a repentant adjustment that you need to make in your life as you hear God's word. How do I practice this? The truth is that we really only know what we practice. We really only know what we carry out in our lives. That's biblical hearing. It's displayed through our obedience. And, and of course, Matthew, as he's writing this, he talks about being lights of the world and people seeing our lights and glorifying our Father who's in heaven. Let your light shine. But he also says this in Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And that touches more than just individual discipleship, more than just one lamp, but a city on a hill. That's a corporate reality. And that's where Luke goes next. So you put a bunch of these lamps together that are on a stand, obeying Jesus, and you light up a city or a world. That's the second takeaway. Number two, Jesus' family is set apart by obedience. His family is set apart by obedience. I love these little places that just kind of remind us that Jesus is a real person. He's a real man, fully man. He has an earthly mother and father, sisters and brothers. Uh, the biblical evidence is just not there, I think, to support any teaching that Mary is a perpetual virgin. These references to Jesus' siblings should be taken as they're seen in Scripture on, as face value. So in Nazareth, people say this about Jesus in Mark 6, 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they're clearly identifying him in this way with his family. So he's fully man, but Jesus never sins or does anything to disrespect his parents or his siblings. Now, there's times when their relationship is strained. We saw when Mary and Joseph couldn't find Jesus and he's in the temple as a young boy. You could, you could argue that she's really pressing him to do that miracle in Cana at the wedding before it is really his time. But here again, the family is, is kind of pressing in, pressing a claim on Jesus over the crowds. We don't know why. Maybe there's an emergency. Maybe, maybe there's a burning question that they need answered. Luke doesn't say this, 
Maybe they're, they're thinking he needs to rest. You've been doing too much, Jesus. Or maybe they, you're kind of crossing the line. You're starting to embarrass us. In Mark 3.21, we read this. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. So Jesus takes this opportunity to share what it means to really be in his family. To really be a part of his family. Look at uh, verse 19. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my, bro- my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. There's that, that theme again that kind of concludes that theme that began really all the way back in chapter 7. It's really a staggering scene. The crowd is pressing in, and his mother and brothers want to see him. And usually, that's a trump card. Family first. Everything stops for the family, but not this time. And so I do think there's a lesson here for us. I think the majority of the time, especially for us in our context in the U.S., meeting the demands of our families will coincide with God's will for our lives. Meeting the demands for our families, with our families, will coincide with God's will for our lives. Husbands, you need to be loving your wives, sacrificially wives, respecting and submitting to your husbands, children obeying your parents. Um, I try to regularly think through and encourage others to think through biblical priorities in my life and your life as a follower of Jesus, as a husband, as a father, as a son, as a, as a pastor, kind of thinking, not getting those priorities out of whack. Those things are really important. Uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That said, there are times when family members will demand unreasonable attention or when they will stand in the way of your obedience to Jesus. I've seen this in multiple ways, and I'm sure you have too. Some of you have experienced this. Uh, when maybe it's a spouse that makes demands on the other that are just unreasonable or that would keep that other um, spouse from, from being a part of the church body, or, or one is a believer, one's not a believer, and there's just a, a difficult challenge there to do life together. We've seen it with young people who get converted and then their parents are not Christians, of course, and their parents apply pressure and, and asking, what, what are you doing? Or particularly if you're from a, another religious background and you may be getting all kinds of things threatened, maybe even your own life or, or being kicked out of the home. Or maybe you're a young person who's, who's been struggling with a call to ministry or the, or the mission field. And you know, going back and talking to your parents about that is not going to go over well. Maybe they're Christian or not. They may force you to choose. Choose family or the church, family or the mission field, family or Jesus. And so it's just instructive to see the way that Jesus handles this. He respectfully, he's sinless, so we know he's doing the right thing. He respectfully shows that family is deeper than just biology. Obedience to God actually takes priority. And some of you know that difficult choice. You know that choice all too well. But notice, Jesus is not disparaging of his family. He's actually elevating the family of God. I think that's a great lesson to take away. 
This can be, it should be done in a way that's loving and respectful while also being clear and firm. Just to be clear that family is not our God. In fact, the best way to love our family is to let them know that they're not our first priority, that Jesus is. That actually brings more security, more peace to a spouse and children to know they're being led by someone who is being led by Jesus. That's the best way to ensure that your family has the right priority in your life. Make Jesus first. Make Jesus your king. Live for him. Obey him. And if you don't have a family, or you honestly just have a bad family, a hard family, a broken family, there's really good news here. That these earthly families are not the gospel. They're not the end all, be all. In fact, they're meant to point to this deeper, eternal, spiritual family. Even if you have no living relatives, or if your earthly family rejects you, listen to what God says to you in Christ. 2 Corinthians 6.18. He says this to you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The gospel creates a family, God's family. And there is no greater privilege. There is no greater joy, blessing than being a part of the family of God, a son or a daughter of the living God. You can't earn your way into that family. It happens through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit as we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, For in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Galatians 3.26. So you're sons through faith, through your belief in Jesus Christ. Through turning from your sin and your pursuit of, of self and trusting in Christ. His perfect life and atoning death on the cross. His bodily resurrection from the dead. Repenting and believing on Christ saves us into God's own family. And by the way, that family is open for you even today. There's an open adoption right now for you. If you would turn from your sins and put your faith and trust in Christ. That's Paul's, some of his favorite language for salvation is adoption. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 1.4. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So again, we're a part of that family, holy of grace. There's no boasting in that language of predestined for adoption to himself. This is God's extravagant grace and love. And then knowing that, is it any surprise, any surprise that those adopted sons and daughters who put their faith in Jesus, who've been rescued from hell, sin and death, that they would obey Jesus, that they would seek to, to, to make him their king and Lord and honor him as servants who obey him? Any, any kind of teaching that would pit grace against obedience, we know it comes from the pit of hell. Because Jesus just says different. Grace leads to obedience. It doesn't cancel it out. It leads to it. That's the main takeaway, I think, that true members of God's family are those who do what Jesus says. They hear the word and do it. 
Remember, Jesus concluded his sermon on the plain with that great illustration. You remember of the man on the, who built his house on the rock. He said, that man is a picture of everyone who comes to him and bears and hears his words and does them. If you want to build your house on the rock and not be washed away by the storms of judgment, the storms of this life, hear the words and do them, Jesus says. Then in Matthew's gospel, Peter makes a profession of faith about Jesus. You are the Messiah, the Christ. And Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus building his church, not just on statements about doctrine, but on people who profess and walk out that doctrine. Those that hear and do his word. So doctrine, orthodoxy, apart from practice, orthopraxy, is hypocrisy. It's not just a spectator sport where we just say, yeah, that's true and that's good. Yay! And then we go off and live for ourselves. The unmistakable family resemblance of the people of God is that they obey the word of God. This is why as a church we try to talk a lot about the importance of church membership, not because we want to have lots of names on a list, on a roll. It's because being a member of the body of Christ means something. It's a separation from the world so the world can see a corporate picture of Jesus and what his body looks like. That's why we practice church discipline, not, not because we're mean. Have you, been, have you visited a family that just didn't do any discipline at all? How was that visit? No, it's because the purity of the body of Christ matters to God. He disciplines those he loves. He purchased us with his own blood. So Christians are not perfect. We will and do sin, but unrepentant sin, sin that isn't dealt with or confessed or turned away from or taken seriously, it lies about the gospel. So we want to tell the truth about Jesus and his church, that being a part of his family means hearing and doing the word by his grace. And so you can think about as if you're a member of our church, we try to try to see some of those those commands in the New Testament that are outlined in the in our church covenant the way that we love one another, the way that we we follow after Jesus together as a body. Friend, I wonder if you're a professing Christian but not a member of a church, is there anyone that's holding you accountable to your profession? Anyone encouraging you to hold fast to the word and not turn from it? That's another big function of what the family of God does. God doesn't intend for you to follow Jesus by yourself all alone. If you're in Christ He then places you in Christ's family, the church. And how strange would it be for you to be a part of a family but never come over for the family dinner, never come to the house, never see mom and dad or the brothers or sisters in his body. The gospel forges bonds and affections that natural families, especially when we have those in our family who are not believers, those, those families can only point to and symbolize. So when we refer to each other as brother or sister here, it's not just old-fashioned tradition. It's a reminder that the family of Jesus is real and alive. God is our Father. Jesus Christ is our elder brother. And we learn from Him how to love our brothers and sisters in Christ with the love that He's loved us. And we're going to be loving them 
forever. Knowing them forever. So that family, the church, is marked by love for one another, love for Jesus, and then obedience to all that Jesus commanded. I think that's what he's saying here in Luke 8. That's what disciples do. They obey their Lord. They don't hide from the light. They spread the light. They step into the light. Perhaps you need to do that today. Perhaps you need to step into the light. You need to maybe replenish the shelving in your heart and mind with the word of God because we are leaky buckets. We get filled up and then we Monday morning, if, if sometimes we just we leak all the way out. We need to be continually filled with the word because we're always forgetting, always leaking. It's encouragement and truth. We don't need to live on yesterday's word or last month's word. We need a new word for today and, a, and fresh obedience to that word and walking with the Lord. And tomorrow we'll need grace for tomorrow. And the more we take in, the more we will desire and hunger for more. So I want to encourage you to water those dry places of your heart with the word. And let the truth bloom there. You'll be encouraged. You'll be encouraged to do that by being a part of a local church. When you're at lunch with someone after church and they're asking, how's it going? And and encouraging you to read the word. To read the word with your family. The gospel creates God's family. And it's a wonderful family. It's not a perfect family. But it is purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. One day it will be perfect. We will live forever with our brothers and sisters in Christ here at UPBC. So our prayer is that our church and our family would reflect Jesus in the way that we follow him together. So friend, let me just ask you as we close, is there anything that's keeping you from taking part in that? Is there anything that's threatening the growth of the word, the hearing of the word, the doing of the word in your life? Take care how you hear. For for the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would be giving us hearts to receive. Lord, that you would be giving us hearts to rejoice and not neglect your word. So even now, as we respond to your word, Lord, we pray we would do so from the heart. We pray that your word would produce conviction of sin, rejoicing, and worship in us. We pray that you'd be building up your people for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.